اوكي السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته اوكي اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وقال ربي اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدتي من لساني يفقهوا بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاه والسلام على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم so last week what i talked about was there are three stories that are going in parallel okay one is the story of ibrahim islam who was originally from iraq has traveled and dropped hajar and ismail his son to makkah which is dead land okay so we're going to come back to this story in a few weeks then we went to his other son ishaq now ishaq himself his children his progeny were all of the prophets that you know of the lineage of the prophet sallam there's no prophets except for ismail above him all the other prophets that you know musa islam and harun daud and isa bin maryam all of these other prophets they came under the progeny of the children of ishaq and they were effectively what we call the bani israel they were the development of the religion of jews and christians the jews and the christian original religion of judaism the original religion of christianity were the pure religions now the term islam when i use it is synonymous to christians and jews of the original scriptures so whenever i use the word muslim and islam prior to the life of muhammad sallam because we've not started his story yet they are muslims because the quran says anyone who accepted allah in the books they are muslims and their religion is islam even though they title it as judaism or christianity doesn't matter they are muslims because they followed those prophets they followed the books and they followed the rules that were given to them at that time and those rules were changed over time okay so we left ismail there we parked him to the side we'll come back to his story then we went all the way down to yemen because we talk about how the civilization grew and we said on the south of arabia is where now the civilization of the arabians or the arabs began to flourish and we started in the ayat of quran so the quran is telling you the story of what's happened in the beginning the middle and it's telling you what's going to happen in the end to all of us so there is a connection all the way through we're trying to relive this whole event so in the quran all these ayahs of the quran they talk about the events that happened so when we talked about the people of saba in yemen and we talked about the dam that got destroyed this is mentioned in the quran in surah al-saba okay and we talked about the kings that came underneath okay where we ended up was judaism as a religion came into yemen they were idol worshippers at some point before muhammad sallam comes into existence christianity also appears into the picture how did christianity land in the arabian peninsula because a lot of question gets asked when you go further into the story if arabia was all about the arabs and the pagans how did the jews end up in medina there were three tribes in jews and then there was the the cousin of khadija radiyallahu anha who was the wife of prophet sallam her first cousin warqa bin nafal was a christian all of these things you need to understand so before i start this story about the boy and the king there's a little bit of a backdrop about how this all began now we don't know exactly what time period this actually happened whether this was the time between isa bin maryam and muhammad sallam so the time period between isa bin maryam jesus and muhammad sallam is 600 years so we don't know if it happened just before isa bin maryam or just after that but let's just assume it's in between that period there was a man who was a very religious man his name was fayumun now fayumun was from the area of syria and he had a belief now we're going to assume that his religion could be either judaism or christianity in this case it has to be christianity because of the fact that that's how christianity came into this into this period so fayumun was by trade a builder but he was a priest and he was a very religious individual and living in a society that was fully corrupted where just like now it is not the norm to be religious it's norm to be agnostic that you don't know what you believe in it's norm to be an atheist but it's definitely a norm to keep god out of the picture of your life so those who are religious in this world today who bring allah as their reference or god as their reference are seen as abnormal they're seen as those who are non-scientific those who go against rationale so even in those days when the prophets used to come and bring allah into their lives and say you need to worship him and make him the center point for a good few hundred years people followed 
And then people transgress. They, they move away. How many people today do you know who pray five times a day? How many Muslims do you know today that will fast or they will not do the haram things? We're lost, right? Even though we claim that we have this right religion. So you can just imagine if we believe we have the right religion, imagine what they're going to be like. So it was a very difficult time for people to keep hold of their religion. So Faya Moon was a very, very strong Muslim or Christian. Let's, let's, use, let's use the word Christian to make it easier. A very strong Christian and the authentic Christian belief. And he was a builder by trade. And what he would do is that he would go from village to village. And he never wanted anyone to know his identity for several reasons. Now, the scholars don't say what those reasons are, but when you go for the story, it kind of makes sense. Number one, whenever Muslims do good, whenever you give zakat, as the hadith says, whatever your right hand gives, make sure the left hand doesn't know what it's given. Whenever you do good dawah and you help someone, you don't want to get the praise. You just make dua for me and that's it. Don't say nothing. Christians had this belief as well. Humble yourself in front of Allah before the shaitan gets to you and makes you feel you're better than you are. Second thing is, now... We don't know whether he was a prophet or a saint or something like this, but we do know those people who are very pious and those people who really are, have connection with Allah, Allah gives power through them as well. I don't mean power as in like there's some sort of magical sort. What they will do is they will make dua for people and Allah can accept their duas. That's as simple as it goes. Don't take it any further than what I'm telling you. So Fayyam Moon was a person that when he used to go to a village, he used to build Monday to Saturday. On a Sunday, he would never work. He would just go to the desert and he would spend the whole day up until evening doing ibadah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he would come back. If anybody was sick and they came to Fayyamun and he would keep a low profile and they would say, can you make dua for me or heal me? Then he would invoke on Allah's name and he would heal that person. So if they had leprosy, if they were blind, if they had this issue, he would make dua for them and they would get healed. What he won't do is if people knew about him or get getting to know him, which he didn't want to happen, they said, can you come to my house and heal this person? He won't do that. He would not come on invite to somebody's house. If people ended up coming across his path and they requested help, then he would do that. So Fayyamun would continuously go around to these villages. He would stay one place, build it. And as he would start healing people, naturally news got around, this guy's gifted. He's got the, you know, the touch of God. He's got this, he's got that. And he didn't want to hang around long enough for people to make him a symbol. And then he would go to the next village and to the next village. One day, Faymoun was, and this we're talking now, he's in Syria, the northern part, right, of Arabia. Okay, so outside Arabia, northern Arabia. So he's in now Syria. He goes to the next town and there's a man called Sahleh who notices him. And he sees him healing people, working and worshipping. Soon as he gets popular in one town, then he moves off to the next one. And Sahleh begins to follow him. Sahleh becomes infatuated by him. Not just infatuated, he almost falls in love with his personality, thinking, look at this person, sacrifices himself for the sake of Allah, doesn't want anything, works by day, works hard, earns the money, spends it on the poor, and then he worships Allah and he helps whoever he can. What more character can you have that you would not admire? So this is how he felt for him. One day, when they went to another town in the area of the Roman Empire in Syria, Fayyamun went to the desert. So, Sahih follows him to the desert. And when he gets down to the desert, he hides himself while he watches Fayyamun do his ibadat. Now, he's doing his ibadat from the morning up until the evening. Then, at a distance, he realizes, Sahih realizes that there's a snake that's coming towards him. And he can see it. Because the snake comes in front of him, Sahli can't see what's happening. Faymun, when he finishes his ibadat, he makes a dua against the snake because the snake was trying to attack him and the snake dies. Now Sahli doesn't see this. Sahli comes running out. He wanted to obviously keep hidden. And he says, Faymun, look out, look out. The snake's going to kill you. He said, the snake's already dead. And then Sahli tries to strike a conversation. He said, I've been following you. I've been watching you. So... Faymun just ignores him and carries on doing his ibadat. When he finishes and he's leaving, Faymun is not conversing with anyone. He doesn't want to talk to anyone. He doesn't want to get involved with anyone's issues. Sahleh says to him, wherever you go, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. And Faymun said to him, you've been watching me. You know what I do. 
you know the hardship that I follow. If you're willing to take that sacrifice, then you're welcome. You can come. So they move on. Now, at that time, in that particular village, a man comes to hear about Feyamun's ability to heal people. And he has a son who's severely sick to the point that the man believed that the son was potentially possessed and that's why he had his illness. Now, people said that he's a man who can cure. But obviously, when he tried to bring him, he wouldn't come. He doesn't come on invites like this. The father knew that he was a builder and he was a builder by trade. So if you call him, he wanted to come down. I want to do an extension to my house. You know, uh, give, me a, give me a quote for the, you know, for the extension. That's the only way that I'll do because that's the, that's the money he makes. So Feyamun comes to the house. What happens is he brings his, picks his son up, puts him on a bed and puts a cover over him. So when Feyamun comes, he can't see his son. Comes to the house, he says, what, do, what work do you want done? Oh, I want a bathroom here, give me a two-bedroom extension over here. Have this conversation, they strike a deal, all done. The moment that conversation is done, the father takes the blanket off his son and he says, please don't run, don't go. I want you to cure him. He's severely sick. I do not know what's possessed him or anything like this, but only you can save him before death will grasp him. So Feymoun, because now he's in that situation, he then makes invokes a dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, does dua with him, ruqya on him, whatever it was, and the boy is healed. Now, Faymun knew at this point now, this man was so overwhelmed with the fact that he's cured his son, that now the news is going to spread and he has to leave town. He has to leave now, he can't come back. So Faymun packs his stuff, Sahli follows him and they go. On their journey, now they're moving from Syria and they're coming further down towards Arabia, okay? So the northern part of Arabia. The moment he comes into the area of Arabia, now if you remember the Qatan family, there were 10 children, six remained, four travelled. I said one of them went to the north part of Arabia, that was a Ghassan, the area of Ghassan, and they also became the Ghassan tribe. That's where he's ended up, so this tribe is kind of like already there. So he ends up there, and on his journey he sees this man by a tree. And the man quickly jumps out when he sees him. He says, I knew it was you. I could recognize you by your voice. Faymun says, what is it that you want? He says, I am dying and I don't want you to leave until I'm dead and bury me and make dua for me. This is how much they respected him. So Faymun took his request because he will never reject a request, but he won't go on the call to people's homes. So the man eventually died. It wasn't long, a couple of days. He was very severely sick. They buried him and then the, the dua. Then they moved on, going towards Hassan, into the Arab area. Now I told you, the Arabian land was so bad. All of the regions were bad. If you're walking, if you're, imagine your wife and your children are just walking from Langley going up towards Burnham. You have to be worried, are they going to come back home? Because there is no law that forbids any man or any gang to pick them up and, and capture them and take them as slave and then sell them off. You have to constantly watch your back. Faymun was a strong man. He enters into this area and he gets nabbed by the Arab tribes and they enslave him. So now Faymun and Sahir are both captured and they are now taken from the north part of Arabia, go past Medina, go past Makkah, all the way to the bottom tip of Arabia to a place called Najran. And Najran is on the border of Yemen and Saudi. It's almost like the Yemen have got control of this area of Najran. When he comes to this place now, he finds that the people here are pure idol worshippers. He gets sold to a nobleman. So this nobleman now becomes his master. And he notices all these people worship this one palm tree. Now, Every year, they have a massive big, their own Eid festival with this palm tree. They will adorn it with jewellery, with clothing and everything. And they'll spend the whole day just doing ibadat and worshipping it. That's idol worshipping. And he was shocked by this because he was in a land more influenced by Christians. And he was just reminding the Christians who became jahil and bringing them in. Now he's ending up in, forget about being a land of Muslims who have just gone astray. He's now landed in a land where they don't even worship Allah. So now he's with this master and master builds him a quarter where he can stay and uses him for building. The master notices one night he's in his quarters, Faymun's in his quarters. Now remember, Sahleh has been sold off to another man. 
okay, another nobleman. So they split up. So Feymun is in this quarter and he starts to make a dua. He starts worshipping Allah. And the nur, the light comes onto this place. And the master realizes where is this light coming from? And he approaches Feymun. He says, what is it that you're doing? He says, all I can tell you that the religion that you're upon and your people is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. There is only one God, Allah. He said, you got a tree out there that all of you worship. He said, if I make a dua to Allah to destroy that tree, would you believe that there is only one God? He said, if you can do that, I wouldn't just believe there's one God, I'd adopt your religion. So he makes a dua to Allah. The next day, a tornado comes and it literally rips out that palm tree from its roots and throws it out. This nobleman who is very influential is now convinced that his God is the right God. It doesn't take a lot. People have different ways of being convinced about Islam. You have enough conversations, it only takes one or two things to be said and you're triggered in the right direction. Some require lengthy conversation. It's up to Allah when he wants to decide when it comes into your heart. So when this happened, everybody else in the area of Najran embraced Islam. Okay, And so this is how Christianity now came into this land. So these Arabs in Najran, because they became Christians, the influence of Christianity came into the Arabian land as well now. Not massively, because as we swing around to the other story eventually in a few weeks, you'll see how Ibrahim Islam's son Ismail brought the religion of monotheism into Arabia, but over the course of hundreds of years, they started going towards idol worship. So you have these Christians who came in now to try and motivate them and that's why you have people like Warqa bin Nafel and that's the name to remember because he will come in. He was the one that told Muhammad no, that angel that came to see you is Angel Jibreel, it's not a devil and you are the Prophet. So he was the one who gave Muhammad that conviction that you have been chosen as the Prophet. So his name is, he will come back in. So that was the story of Fayyamun, okay, and how he brought in Christianity. Now I'm going to swing around the other direction to the last week's talk. And I said, remember that when Dushanatir, remember the, the king who took the military coup, removed the kings, and he was he was basically perverted king, right? And he was horrible to his people. He he was he was such a treacherous individual that eventually what happened was he tried to abuse one of the sons of the kings, and his name was Yusuf. Okay, otherwise known as Nawas, yeah, but his real name was Yusuf. This boy killed him, right? Remember last week, this boy killed him and he got now picked to be the king. So now you got this story of Feyamun, so park him now to the side, he's there. Further down into Yemen, Nawas or Yusuf is now the king. Now who knows in history, right? Because he was, he adopted the religion of Judaism from his forefathers. If you remember, Judaism came into this land. So the kings, the children, they adopted Judaism. But like any other religion, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, Islam, or any other flavor of religion that exists, eventually corruption comes to it. And even the religion of Judaism, they became idol worshippers. We know for a fact that Christians are idol worshippers because they take their saints and they worship them and they lose effects of their, their principles. So, story is that Yusuf or Dunawas, when he became king, because of his childhood ordeal, because of his abuse, he was mentally a little bit deranged. And he got to a point that he believed, some people say that he believed that he was God at some point, that he thought he was so powerful and so much in control that his ego got the better of him and he felt that he was the master and the king. So, Dunawas had a sorcerer that was with him, a witch or a wizard, whatever you want to call it. And this wizard had connections with the jinns. And what this witch would do is that he would perform tricks, real tricks at times as well, to convince people that this Dunawas, this Yusuf, the King Yusuf, is the real king or he is God. So he would use him to convince the people. And so many of the people. They followed him and they did as he, as he pleased. So this story now is explained in the Quran in Surah Al-Buruj. 
And in Surah Al-Buruj, if you look at the first few eyes of Surah Al-Buruj, look at between 1 and 10, okay? This is what the Quran says. It says, curse with the people of the ditch. Not going to make any sense to you yet, but let me just read this and then we'll explain this. So cursed were the people of the ditch, fire that was supplied as fuel in the ditch. And when they sat by in the fire and they witnessed what they were doing against the believers, burning them, they had nothing against them except that they believed in Allah. That those people who made the ditch and made a fire and threw people in that ditch had nothing against those people they threw in. Because some of the soldiers who threw them in, some of them were their mothers, some of them were their fathers, some of them were their relatives and their best friends. But on the order of the king, they had to throw these people. Now, you don't know why they're being thrown in. I'm just, you're reading the verse now. So Allah is now saying, and they had nothing against them except that the reason why they threw them in is because they believed in Allah and they didn't. They hated them enough because they were Muslims. Now, how different is that to the world today? If you look at the Muslims in China, are they not being persecuted and killed and tortured because they're Muslims? If you look at the Muslims in Kashmir, even they're Muslims, they're being persecuted because they're Muslims. Right? If you look, if people don't know about Syria, if you look at Assad and what, the, what he had done, the Alawis and what they've done to the Sunni Muslims. So the same pattern continuously happens because... What you need to understand, the moment you follow a particular belief and a way of life, they feel that that is a restriction to what other people want to do. That is a restriction to what they want to do. And they feel like you're an obstacle for them to implement power, for them to implement their strength over you. And that is why they tortured them. And then the eye of the Quran then goes on to say that the one to whom belongs the dominions of the heavens, Allah and the earth, and Allah is the witness over everything. Verily, those who put to trial the believing men and the women, those believing men and women were put to trial by torturing them and burning them. And they do not turn in repentance to Allah, will, the, will, will have the torment of hell and they will have the punishment of the burning fire. So here Allah is talking about this story. And the only introduction you got is about a ditch that was fueled with fire and everyone threw it, thrown into it. Now this story will explain. And this is how the story began. Muhammad was in Makkah. And in Makkah, he was there for his first 13 years of his prophethood. It was the most difficult period of time for the Muslims. It is like being, it's, it's like uh, Muslims being in the most hostile territory that you could ever imagine. And it's not just hostile because of the people. These people are also your relatives and they have no barrier and they have no border in terms of what they're willing to do to you because your religion, irrespective of the, their relationship with you. They were being so tortured so bad, there was one Sahabi by the name of Khabar bin Arat, radiallahu anhu. Khabar bin Arat, if you read his story, what they used to do, Khabar bin Arat, the, the Quraysh used to pin him down over a rock, right? Chest bare, top off, and they used to hold his arm. And you've seen a barbecue, you've seen the coal that you put in the barbecue gets piping red hot. They used to pick it up with steel thongs and they used to put it on his back. And Hadith goes on to explain, they used to burn through his back until it touched his bone. And they did it about four or five times. And I remember the famous Hadith about Umm al-Khattab when he was Khalif. What he used to do is that he used to kick out all the youngsters that weren't really around or they were too young during the time when they struggled with Muhammad Sallam. And he would call all the elders and he would sit them down. And he would do this constantly because now when Umm al-Khattab was Khalif, They've conquered many lands, they're rich. But he doesn't like the riches because he thinks too much wealth and too much of the dunya will keep you away from the akhirah. So he used to have this session, like these little gatherings. He used to call these sahabi together and he said, remind me, tell me what struggle you went through with Muhammad Sallam. I want to hear your story, your story, so we can remind each other where we came from. And then he used to say to Khabar bin Arad, tell us your story. Khabar bin Arad never used to say anything. All he did was turn his back and lift his kameez. And all they would see was the mark. And Umar Khattab would say that was enough to know what his story was. So when Khabar bin Arat went through this torture, Muhammad was sitting at the Kaaba with his back resting up against it. And the Sahabi came to Muhammad while they were going through such difficult time. 
I mean, everything. They had trade embargoes on them. People wouldn't talk to them. People wouldn't sell food to them. People wouldn't, let, wouldn't marry into them. Some of them were getting tortured if they didn't have protection. It was, you just couldn't come out of your house. They said to Muhammad will you not invoke a dua to Allah to take this difficult situation away from us, make it easy for us? Muhammad face went red with anger. He said, do you not think that people came before you with their religion and they were not tested? Do you think they were not tested? He said, their swords, you know, swords, manual swords were taken to their head and they were cut in half. Metal combs were taken and they would rip off their skins until it would jam into their bones. And you're asking me this? And then he went on to explain the story of the boy and the king. And he went on to say that there was this king, which this Dunawas, and he had this sorcerer. And this sorcerer used to do all this magic. The sorcerer became very old and he said to Dunawas, he said, I am getting old, I will eventually die. You need to find me an apprentice that I can train, that can take over my spot and carry on doing what I did so that you can remain in power. So Dunawas said to the to, to his uh, nobleman, go out there and put the job description out and let everyone apply for the role. So they were looking for a young kid that can learn and who was, who was healthy and, and has the ability to absorb a lot of knowledge. So eventually, one young lad got the job. This one young lad, when he came to see the, uh, the sorcerer, the sorcerer said, we have picked you because you're the most intelligent because you are fast at learning and you have the ability to absorb a lot of information. So I want you to come to me first thing in the morning and you will stay with me till the evening and we will pay you, your family, and everything will be taken care of. And eventually when you're fully trained up, you can take the position that I hold at the moment. So this boy, whose name was Ibn Thamud, this boy went home, got up in the morning for the first lesson and on his way, on his way, the journey. Now, he may have lived out of town, so he may have come in towards the main city, but on his journey, he went past the cave and he could hear the recitation and the duas of someone that captured him, his mind and in his, in his, in his heart. So he snuck into the cave and went down, almost like it's sort of a monastery. When he went down there, he saw this man reciting and worshipping and he didn't know what he was worshipping. So he listened and he was really captivated by what he was saying and then he left. Then he went to the sorcerer. Sorcerer was angry that why you're late, beat him up a little bit and then started teaching him. On the way back, he started listening to this priest again. Then he went home. The next day he came back again and he went down and as he was listening, the priest that was down there saw him. He says, what are you doing here? Because he was keeping his identity quiet and he was doing his worship in a land that was hostile to the religion of Christianity. So this man said to him, why are you here? He goes, I'm listening to what you're saying and I like it. Can I learn from you as well? So he said, fine. And then he used to teach him. Then he went left in the first part of the morning, went to the sorcerer, got there late. Sorcerer beat him up again. Why are you coming late? Taught him and then used to go back to the monk, learn again, and then go home. He said to the monk, this is becoming difficult because I come to learn from you, and then I go to the sorcerer and he beats me. What can I say? He said, you come to me, you learn from me. When you go to the sorcerer, say to him that your parents kept you behind. And when you come back and you learn from me in the evenings, and your parents beat you because you're late, you tell them, that the sorcerer kept you behind and they will leave you alone because they're getting paid for it. So he continues doing this for a period of a few years. Eventually it came to a point, the sorcerer had taught him a lot of magic and the boy had learned a lot about Christianity, about Islam and his conviction towards Allah became so great. One day he came out and he was when he was coming to work in the morning, in the village, there was a great beast. We don't know what that beast is, a lion, a tiger, whatever it was, doesn't explain. But it was a beast that was in the city center and nobody could do anything. If you tried to make a move, it would pounce, it would kill you. So while he looked at this beast, 
he thought to himself, I'm going to make a dua to Allah, right? If he exists, if it's real. I'll take this stone and I'll make dua to Allah. He said, Ya Allah, if the path of the monk is the haq, then give me the ability to use this stone, strike this beast and kill it. And if I'm unable to do that, then the, my path will be with the sorcerer. He made this dua, took the stone and he threw it and he killed the beast with one shot. And that was his conviction. Everyone saw it. This boy now became famous. He was already famous anyway because of the fact that he was the new apprentice for the sorcerer. And everyone knows the sorcerer because of the kingdom. So he goes back to see the monk and he says to the monk, today I have made a decision. This situation happened. I made a dua to Allah and I killed that beast. And now my, now my path is Islam. The monk said to him, today, my son, you have become a greater person than me. You are closer to Allah than I ever was. Now your test will begin. Now your hardship will begin. Because Allah will never ever test those, the people who have strong iman, he will never let them go without a test. Therefore, we should never make dua for a test. We make dua to Allah that don't put us through a test. But Allah says, you think that you will enter paradise except for like those who came before you who were tested. And their test was, if you read the history, you won't even survive even reading that stuff. Their test was a greater test. So those who believe, they will be tested. And you could be tested many ways, financially, your health-wise. You could have cancer, you could have kidney failure. All of this comes from Allah. Allah is testing you. The life is a test. So this boy, Eventually now, he embraces the religion of Christianity and he's now doing what this monk does, which is going around healing people. Does everyone know who the monk is now? Fayamun. okay? So he's now going around and he's healing people, leprosy, blindness, all sorts of illnesses, and everybody's coming to him. One of the king's aides, one of the king's aides, he finds out and he's He's born at a very early age with blindness. So he tells his slaves, gather all the presents. Let's go see this boy. They go to see the boy and they said, he said to him, I know that you have the power of healing. All these gifts that you see are for you and your family, if you can heal me. The boy said to him, I can't heal you. I don't have the power to heal you. The only one that can heal you is Allah. I will invoke the dua, but the one that will heal you will come from the one God. He said, okay, whatever it is. So this boy starts to make the dua and this man is healed. He can see. Now this is a shock. Now you imagine if you carried an illness all your life that doctors have told you, you will never recover from it. And somebody manages to do something for you like this, doesn't even take the credit for himself but assigns it to somebody else, that will be a shock to your mind and will, 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 will really make you think about your own belief and what you've been following because you have seen something that in your own eyes, if not, is a miracle in itself. So for this man, it's now playing his mind. How did he do it? No, I'm a rich man. I've gone everywhere. Nobody was able to heal me. This boy didn't even say that he was able to heal me. He said, this one God. Now when he's back in the kingdom and he's in the court of the palace of the king, so Dunuas is sitting there and he notices this man. He says, what happened to you? Are you able to see? And he, he was smiling and said, yes, I'm able to see. He said, who did this? How are you able to do this? How did you get your sight back? And he said, the sight has come from the one Lord, Allah. Now we have a problem. Dhu Nawaz is like, what, sorry, what did you say? Excuse me? Which God are you talking about? There's only one God around here. Which God are you referring to? He said, the one God. He said, your Lord and my Lord. He said, okay. He said, who, who healed you? Who was it? He said, it was that boy, the sorcerer. Okay, so the king says, bring him to me. So the boy now comes. 
the king is now thinking this magic hasn't come from this so-called Allah of yours this magic has come from what this man this other man has been teaching you he said no because not even he can do this this has come from Allah so the king looks at these his aid and he looks at him and he says now tell me who cured you let's get the let's get that right again he said your lord and my lord he says to the soldiers grab hold of him he said bring the saw out now what they used to do is the Yemenis used to dig a hole or used have a entrapment where they used to put you in so it was almost like it was a hole they bury you and they hold you in there so you can't move he said now tell me who cured you he said your lord and my lord he wouldn't give up his religion so he took the saw and he said cut his head in half let's see how much pain he can endure before he gives up and they literally from his middle parting and you can just imagine one guy it's not electric saw it's not quick it's not fast it's painful and this is what Muhammad was alluding to when he said to the sahabi do you think that those before you were not tested and allah put them through that before he gave them the victory so this man was punished and he died he didn't take the religion so he took the boy now he didn't want to kill the boy because the boy has got the talent of the sorcerer the sorcerer is going to die soon the boy dies he's in trouble how is he going to keep his power in position so he wants to teach the boy lesson so he says to the boy who taught you about this god now one of the conversation faymoon had with the boy he said to him now that you have become a greater man than me your test will be great but whatever you do don't give my name don't give my name now we know that faymoon wherever he went he always kept undercover he moved from place to place and he didn't want anyone to know who he was that was always consistent within him the boy said he will not disclose the name they started to torture the boy for long periods of time for days and eventually the boy cracked the boy was about 14 15 years old right that's historical artifacts will say so he said it's this man he said bring that monk here then the monk was brought here and in front of the boy he said to the monk who is you did you teach him this he said yes he goes what is this he goes this is ashhadu allah ilaha illallah There is only one God but Allah. So this is your God Allah is it? He asks the soldiers, grab hold of him, start to torture him. And they start to torture him. Give up your religion, give it up. He will not give it up and he died. Mazar Mata. So the king now looks at the boy and said, "Are you going to denounce this God of yours or not?" He said, "No, because he's going to have a problem because if he's using the sorcerer to justify he's the God and then you got a sorcerer who believes another God, we got an issue here you'll lose his power so he said right if this is the case i can't kill you so that people will know because people because you're already popular you saved the people from the beast and you've healed everyone so he said to the soldiers take this boy take him up to the mountain and if he still you're threatening him to throw him over if he still does not convert if he still not come back to our our ways then kill him and if people ask we'll just say he just died fell over the cliff or whatever so they took him and they took him up to the mountain the boy made a dua to allah he said ya allah save me and do as you please with them then allah sent an earthquake and all the soldiers fell off except for the boy now the boy had an opportunity to run if he was scared he would have run he didn't he went back to the palace he's trying to prove a point The king looked at him the guards were all there he says what are you doing here where are my soldiers he goes allah has dealt with your soldiers he said right and you're still not coming back to this religion of mine said, no he said a soldier take him take him the boat and take him out to sea and drown him there if he does not revert drown him so they take him to the boat it's a small little boat they took him out to the sea and the boy makes a dua to allah he said yeah allah save me do as you please with them the boat capsizes as a wave comes throws them all off they're all in the water and the others drown and he manages to survive gets to shore again he had an opportunity to run he didn't he came back to the palace when he came back to the palace 
the king was absolutely shook now. Now we have a situation, there's a psychological battle going on now. He's trying to convert him back to his religion, but he's evading his power. He's sending his soldiers to kill him, and this little boy is getting away with everything. Now it's like, I've got to kill you. You can't be doing, you're embarrassing, you've got to kill you. I'm going to kill you. The boy said to him, I'm back here, but you can never kill me. The only way you can kill me is if you follow my instructions. King's like, I don't care. What is it? He said, put me in a stadium and call everyone to witness this. There was a, probably the numbers that we had, I would was, I was say between 100 to 200,000 people okay, that turned up at the stadium. He said, tie me up to the post. Tie him up to the post. He said, take one of my arrows, point it at me, and I want you to say, in the name of the Lord of the boy. Yeah, in the name of the Lord of the boy. And then point the arrow to my head and fire. And you have to say it loud. And he said it loud. Everyone was listening. Everyone was like, what's going on here? People are panicking. And he says, in the name of the boy, in the name of the Lord of the boy, pulls the arrow back, went straight through the side of his temple, exactly where he said it was going to go, and he died. The king was like, he's nothing. So much for his God. Then there was a bit of a hustle and bustle in the crowd. People started talking. His king's, his aides turned up to him and said, the very thing that you were afraid of is now beginning to happen. He goes, what are you talking about? He said, those people are now convinced his God is the right God. You're a fake and you're a fraud. And whatever you believe in is just a lie. He became so angry, he started to calm down the crowd. He said to the soldiers, tell these people, calm down. This boy was nothing, he was a nobody. He just made it up. They said, no, he's not. His Lord is a true Lord. You've been tricking us. How else were you able to kill him? You tried twice to kill him, you couldn't kill him. His Lord is the right Lord. And all these people started becoming Muslim by witnessing this. The king became so angry, he ordered the soldiers. He said, dig a trench, a ditch. Dig it. Fill it up with coal and fire. And grab every single one of these people and ask them, if they do not reject that religion of that boy, then throw him into that fire. They say 20 to 70,000 of them perished in that fire because they will not give up. Their belief was so strong. And the ayah of the Quran talks about there was one woman who had a newborn child and she was in there and she was shaking. And as she was going towards, as they were in the queue, they're asking, do you believe his God? Do you believe in Dunawas? She obviously believed in the boy's king. She believed in Allah. But she was petrified. And then Allah sent a message to the baby and the baby spoke to her and said, Oh mother, do not fear, you're on the huck. So remember one thing, Allah will never allow you to feel the pain of the torture. So even they were thrown in there, they didn't, get, they didn't feel that, but there was that test that they went through. So 70,000 of these people were then perished. For the sake of Allah's mother, the test that they went through, the sacrifice they had to make for just an hour of conviction that they had because they knew the ultimate goal. So eventually what had happened was these people were tortured. One of those men, one of the men who was a Christian, he managed to escape and the soldier didn't want anyone to escape. He escaped and he managed to get one a copy he had they had a copy of the Bible that they were throwing all the books as well that they had from the monk and his monastery they were throwing they were burning it. So he managed to escape and made his way for a long period. He evaded the people and he made his way in his long journey all the way back to Syria where Caesar was. And he said to Caesar, This is what's happened. This nutcase of a king is killing all the people who just converted to Christianity. And obviously Caesar was a Christian. He says, right, I can't do anything now, but I will tell the negus in Abyssinia. Remember, Abyssinia is on the east, sorry, west side of Yemen, on the other side. He goes, I will send boats over to them and they will go over and they will deal with this situation. So that story now leads into the story of Ariat and Abraha. 
because they were the two that were sent. So if anyone knows the story of Surah Arfil, yeah, this, this is leading on to that story now, but we don't want to cover that now. What was the most amazing thing about this particular story was the fact that Umar bin Khattab, when he was Khalif, they were building structures and masjids in these areas, in Najran and Sana'a. So he sent his army there and they said, excavate the ground so we can build foundations. I'm going to build a masjid here. When they built it, they said, we found a coffin. Yeah, it was a coffin, it was just a body that we found. When we found the body, the body was sitting upright and its hand was like this over its forehead. He said, we pulled the, the hand off the forehead and the head started to bleed. So this message came back to Umi Khattab that what should we do? He said, this is the boy and the king. Yeah, he said, because that was the wound. He said, put his hand back and leave him in the grave and leave this area and go. So the amazing thing about this particular story, this story really talks about what Allah is telling you here. Every single Muslim that exists from the day of creation until the Qiyam Qiyamah has to go through a level of test. Those who do not go through the test are in some level of danger and should understand where is my belief at. Because Allah will only ever test the ones who He loves the most. And Allah only tests those people who are willing to surpass the levels that they're already at to get closer to Him. That's why the Hadith and the Ayat of the Quran that refers to the fact that Allah says to Muhammad tell your believers, whatever they think of me is what I will be for them. If they think I'm the God of mercy, I will be the God of mercy for them. And if they, if they think that I can do this for them, I will do it for them. If they think that I'll be able to help them, I will help them. Whatever they want, if you believe that Allah can do it. So a lot of people say to me, oh, we make dua to Allah. It never happens. The first problem is if I can, if I can put you on a test, dissect you psychologically and say, do you really believe Allah can help you? Because some of it is just out of habit, isn't it? You do your salah and you make a dua, Ya Allah, let me pass my exams. But you don't act or behave in that manner. You don't really truly put your taqwa in God. That's the first problem. God says, look, I'm not silly. I know when you actually believe in me. I know when you actually have taqwa in me, you have dependency on me. And right now, with your hands up, you don't have that. You don't truly believe in what I can do. Right now, I'm just a story. I am just a fallacy. I am just a fairy tale that your parents have taught you. But you yourself, you haven't grasped on to me yet. In this story, you can see that the boy went through so many realities. He saw what he saw and became convinced. Like the, like the, uh, you know, the the uh, the advisor of the king who was blind. To something like that to happen opened him up and made him have so much taqwa and conviction in Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Now ask yourself the question, how many times have you fallen into that situation? So two things will happen now in your life. Two things that can potentially, outcomes can happen. You can take the middle of the road of your life, carry the label of being a Muslim, assume that you have the belief, and cruise through life. And then the hadith will answer your question, and when Allah will bring you on the day of judgment, and the angel will bring you forth in front of him, Allah will command the angels, take him to hell, take her to hell. The Muslim will stop, or the man or the woman will stop and say, Ya Allah, wh why? Did you not promise that Muslims will enter paradise? He goes, yeah, I did. But who said you're a Muslim? And he will play your whole life back to you. And he will say to you, at what point did you ever believe that I was there? When I ordered you to pray, did you pray? No, you abandoned my prayer. You just... You knew it's time for Salah and you didn't care. You didn't want to pray. It's different when you have circumstances where it's difficult for you to pray. You want to, but you can't. But there's one where it doesn't even come in your mind. There are people I've seen who will pray and others will just say, no, it's fine, you don't pray. This, I will tell you now, there is not one scholar in the world today that will tell you that you're in the fold of Islam if you do that. That's called abandonment. That's like saying, I don't care what Allah says. I'm, that's not for me. That's your psychological thing. You have to reevaluate all your beliefs and your understanding. What are you? 
Because otherwise, we're just like everyone else that exists in this world. We, we give ourselves labels. And your labels are more of your identity. You know, you have some of these Iranians that come around and say, oh, yeah, you know, we're really Americans. Yeah, but, you know, we only, we only believe that we're Muslims from our ancestral, you know, sort of identity perspective. But no, I don't pray and I don't fast. And I don't, that's just an identity. And I like to have that because it's cool to have that identity. You know, you've got some historical background. You're, you're meaningful for something. Otherwise, what, what is left of you? So you can cruise through your life and just carry on like this. Or Allah says, and this is the very key hadith. Allah says, if you come to me, and because that hadith carries on, if you come to me by a handspan, I'll come to you by arm's length. If you come walking to me, I'll come running to you. People say, what does that mean? It means very simple. Allah's put you in a test. We're having a stare down. Allah's having a stare down with you. Allah's saying, who's going to make the first move? I'm the king, I'm the master. I don't need you. Why should I make the move? It's like when the adults are in a room and a young kid comes up. Do you want the adult to get up to give salam to the youngster? Or do you want the youngster to come up to the adult? Which way do you do it? But the attitude that we have, we always say, why is Allah doing anything for me? Sorry, or, sorry, what exactly have you done for him? What gives you the right or what makes you think you have the right for someone to come to assist you when you've done nothing for him? So when Allah says, when you have made the move, when you had the first move is intention. You go to you go to sleep tonight, you say, tomorrow, inshallah, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna reach out to Allah. Then Allah will make a step towards you, bigger, and makes it easier. If you reject the handshake. <laughs> then that's a different story, right? Now Allah will put his hand out. You motivated it, next day comes, and then you retract from it. Yeah? You know, like a lot of brothers will say, tomorrow, inshallah, I'm going to start my Jummah. And then tomorrow comes, nah. Go watch a footy game or I'm going to go hang out with some mates for lunch. You retract your hand back away from Allah. That's what you're doing. That is the most horrible thing when you think about it, what you're actually doing. And Allah saying, okay, you know what? I'm the Lord of the universe. I'm the master of the universe. And I can forgive you 80 times over than what your mother can. I'll let this one go. Let's try again tomorrow. And keep trying and keep trying. Until the time comes, Allah says, your time is going very quick because that one day you're flipping over, you're just getting closer to your death. And I'm not moving that for anything. I've given you time. I've given you, I've sent this person and this person to remind you. I've sent everyone to remind you. Don't say to me on the day of judgment, no one came to tell me. I sent everyone to you. So here we, we need to wake up and understand. Then when you follow the path, with that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises your status. With the test that you get, you will overcome that test. Well, Usri Yusra, Muhammad whenever he got a difficult test in his life, that test will test you physically, and mentally, you know, when things get difficult, family situations, work situations, you feel depressed, you know, you can't sleep at night. This is a test. Now Allah wants to see, are you coming back to me or are you going to call your mate and try and get, you know, some sort of reasoning from him or get some help from him? Or are you going to come back to Allah for support? Are you going to make the dua? Are you going to get up for tahajjud and say, yeah, Allah, only you can help me. I'm going to dial you up. Please come and help me out. Yeah. Then when you surpass that, Allah will test you again. The greater your test, the greater your reward. When you have no test, then it's a question whether you'll get into paradise or not. And that's where it comes down to. Jazakallah khair, inshallah. We'll see you next week. Assalamu